Zen nicotine pouches deliver nicotine satisfaction anywhere, anytime, which means Zen pairs well with you, your personality, your schedule, and your spontaneity. Zen fits easily into your bag, pocket, and into your life because it's smoke-free, hands-free, and hassle-free. So the only person who will know you have a Zen pouch in is you. Visit Zinn.com or head to your local convenience store today to find your Zen. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Pause for a big thank you to our partner making today's program possible. It's Dexcom. With the new Dexcom G7, you get better diabetes results without those awful finger sticks. It sends your glucose numbers to your compatible phone or to your watch so you can always see where you are and where you're heading. See how food and exercise affect your glucose. It makes it easier to spend more time in range and lower your A1C. Take more control of your diabetes with the number one recommended CGM brand. It's so easy to get started today at Dexcom.com. Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com compatibility. Thanks, Dexcom, for being our partner. Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've always heard it's not what you know, but who you know. And I never believed that was actually true, but now I'm starting to get very, very suspicious. A prominent Georgia lawyer who, a jury says, killed his wife is set to be released from jail after a plea deal. That's right. High-profile lawyer Tex McIver pled guilty to involuntary manslaughter. But is he set to actually walk free? Is there any justice? I'm Nancy Grace. This is Crime Stories. Thank you for being with us here at Crime Stories and on Sirius XM 111. All you legal eagles remember Tex McIver, remember, in the back seat of a vehicle and claims he was afraid of protesters from Black Lives Matter? That was BS. That's absolutely not true. That did not happen. He claimed he was so afraid that he pulled the trigger of the gun and killed his wife. Really? That's a line of BS, technical legal term. And a jury agrees with me, and they convicted him. Then, in an odd and bizarre twist of the law, there is a problem in the trial. The case is reversed. And now he pled guilty to a light sentence, involuntary manslaughter, eight years for a death? Is it me? Am I the crazy one? I'm Nancy Grace. This is Crime Stories. Thank you for being with us here at Crime Stories and on Sirius XM 111. Does anybody remember that just a few days after his wife is killed by him, he throws this giant cell and sells all of her jewelry, her luxury clothes, furs, everything, mementos. He didn't care about her. He didn't care about keeping her belongings. No, he wanted the money, and he got it all right. 
But now, Tex McIver, the pretend cowboy lawyer in a silk-stocking law firm in Atlanta, could be released from prison within a year after taking a sweetheart plea deal. How did this happen? Tex MacGyver has accepted a plea deal in the fatal shooting of his wife in 2016. MacGyver had been convicted of felony murder and was serving a life sentence, but that conviction was overturned by Georgia's highest court, which ruled that the jury should have had the option of a misdemeanor involuntary manslaughter charge. Take a listen to our friends at 48 Hours and 11 Alive. This was a enormously high-profile case. They were a big-time power couple. Here you have the vice chair of the state elections board, who's a prominent Atlanta lawyer. You have this strikingly beautiful, incredibly successful businesswoman. On the night of September 25th, 2016, Tex McIver shot and killed his wife, Diane. They'd been married for 11 years. The Fulton County Medical Examiner has ruled 63-year-old Diane MacGyver died of a gunshot wound to the back. She was shot inside a Ford Expedition she rode in with her husband Tex and a close family friend as they returned from their Putnam County branch. They were very, very good citizens of Putnam County. Hmm. Well, one of those so-called good citizens of Putnam County, that's Eatonton, Georgia, ended up behind bars for shooting his wife dead. One of the things I remember the most, Mike Pachinik, is that his story about how and why the gun misfired in the car. Let's see. First of all, um, he was asleep, and then he woke up because there was a bump in the road, I think, and he pulled the trigger, and whoops, it shot his wife dead. Then he claimed... Uh, oh, yes. Then he claimed it was the black people's fault. Remember that? That they were protesting and he pulled the trigger. That's right. Blame the black man again. Um, gosh, there was the sleeping. There was the so-called protest. Seems like there was another reason he shot his wife dead. Mike. Pachinik is with me, formerly with WSB-TV Channel 2, high-profile reporter. Mike, I can't believe they have reversed this case, but let's talk about what happened at the beginning before we get to another bad decision by the Georgia Supreme Court. Tell me what happened the night that Diane McIver, gorgeous, brilliant, beautiful, worked her fingers to the bone to build up Carrie Limo and was bailing this husband, Tex McIver, the high-profile lawyer, bailing him out. I mean, he was hemorrhaging money. All those designer clothes, a full-on farm in Eatonton, Georgia, when they lived and worked in Atlanta. He had been put on, was he put on off council, which means you're not bringing in enough money in his uh, fancy law firm. I mean, she was bailing him out with buckets. And then when she died, he gets it all. Isn't that the way it went down, Mike? Well, that's certainly uh, the way prosecutors portrayed their life. But, Nancy, this all started uh, earlier in that day. They were at that ranch out there in Putnam County making their way back to Atlanta. Their friend Danny Joe Carter was at the wheel. Diane's in the front seat. Tex is in the back. And as they made their way into downtown Atlanta, there was some traffic. So they got diverted, got off the highway, 
And that is when uh, Tex uh, claims that he woke up, looked out the window and saw a group of homeless people and some Black Lives Matter protesters gathering in this area off what's called the downtown connector, right in the heart of downtown Atlanta. I'm glad you corrected me, Mike. I forgot it was also the homeless people's fault. Go ahead. So they get off the highway and he looks around. He says, girls, I don't think we should have gone this direction. Please hand me my gun. His gun is in the console. It's in a plastic public shopping bag. He puts it in his lap and then claims to have fallen back asleep. They're driving through downtown into an area of Atlanta known as Midtown, just north of there, right on Piedmont Avenue, right next to Piedmont Park, a sprawling green space right in the heart of Midtown Atlanta where folks come to congregate for festivals, very popular with restaurants, highly populated, a lot of folks out milling about. And that's when he claims uh, the gun's in his lap. He gets jerked away by this bump in the road, and the gun goes off. Okay, wait, 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 wait. You know, Mike Pashinik, you know, I've been a big fan of yours for a long time. Not the creepy kind that stalks you and tries to look in your window, but following your work is a better way to put it. But I love the way you just put that. The gun just went off. It's like um, a snake coiled up in the corner. It just strikes all on its own. B.S., Pachinik. He pulled the trigger. The gun didn't just go off. It didn't malfunction. The trigger was pulled, and he shot his wife dead. Isn't that true? Well, that was the question, was whether he had cocked the gun prior to that. Because as you know, if the gun isn't cocked, it takes a lot of pressure for someone to pull a trigger. And so if the gun were cocked, a hairpin would set it off, right? So uh, that was sort of the, uh, the, the, the story. A hairpin. Yeah, hairpin. A hairpin. Yep. What hairpin? Now, I'm serious. A hairpin would have set it off. It was his finger. Is that the hairpin to which you are referring? Perhaps. Perhaps. But that, but that was never established, whether the trigger was actually pulled. I mean, whether the, the, the gun was cocked. Okay, it was never established whether the gun was cocked or not. Agree. But was it established? It was his finger on the trigger. Right. For the gun to have gone off the way he's asserting, it would have had to have been pulled back if it were that simple. Otherwise, he would have had to apply good five pounds of pressure to pull the trigger, which would mean that he was intentionally pulling the trigger, right? Caught or not caught, do you disagree that he pulled the trigger? He had to have pulled the trigger if the gun went off. So the gun didn't just go off. He pulled the trigger. The question is whether he applied the pressure to pull the trigger if the gun were not cocked. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? That's the first time I've laughed today. Isn't that the first time I've laughed today? Okay, so Daryl Cohen, I think Mike Pachinik, as famous as he has become uh, throughout the South at WSB TV Channel 2, he may have lost his calling because he would make one H-E-double-L of a defense attorney. Because I've never heard anybody, really, other than you, be able to suggest that even though he pulled the trigger, it was an accident. Well, Nancy, you're going to hear it from me oh, again. Dear Lord in how, many to- how many times do we know that he practiced firing a weapon from the back seat through a front seat into a person before this? We don't. How many how many times was the trigger pulled? Once. How much do we know? Was he drunk? Was he sleeping? I don't even think that matters. He said he was sleeping and woke up 
and that it was the black people and the homeless people that scared him. So he shot his wife. Yeah, I, I, I don't even understand this. Everyone keeps talking about Midtown like it's some nefarious. I lived there. It's not. I lived right there about three blocks from where this went down for years and years and years and never had a problem. But somehow it's the neighborhood. It's the homeless people. It's the black man. It's all their fault because he pulled the trigger. And you and Pachinik can talk about how was it an accident that he pulled the trigger. He, I could hold a gun up right now and point it at Jackie sitting here in the studio and, and, and pull it and go, oh, that was an accident. Isn't it true, Daryl Cohen, that the law, the black and white letter of the law, presumes you intend the natural consequence of your act. I can't hold a gun up to her and pull the trigger and go, oh, I just meant to scare her. I didn't mean mean to blow her face off. The law presumes you mean the natural consequence of your act. And if he's holding a gun with his finger on the trigger in the back seat and the barrel is pointed at her seat, what does the law presume, Daryl? If there was no back seat if he was pointing it directly at her and everything else. And by the way, Nancy, let's use a kiss method. Keep it short, stupid. Keep it simple, stupid. This is simple in my view. We don't know what type of material was in the seat between Have you lost him your, Okay, you know what? Sometimes I forget this is your job uh, to no, make what is, is very real. clear, very muddy. Stories with Nancy Grace. Claude Lee texts McIver the third just pled guilty to involuntary manslaughter in exchange for an eight year prison sentence. That is a drastic change from the life sentence he originally got after trial. He is now immediately eligible for parole? Seriously? Did anybody think about that before they entered a sweetheart deal? Why not just retry him and get another serious conviction? This guy shot his wife. Why is he going to walk free? Mike Pachinik, tell me about the jury's verdict and the nurses who testified on one Friday morning in court how McIver was completely emotionless at the hospital. And that Diane herself said McIver had been holding a gun behind her back. And that she chose not to see her husband before she died. She was asked, do you want him to come in? She did not want him in the room with her, Mike. That's right. And everybody said that he was not acting like you would expect a grieving husband to act. You know, emotionless. Uh, perhaps in shock, but not not certainly acting like somebody who had just shot their wife, whether it was accidental or not. Uh, and, you know, yes, she did not want to see him there in the ER. Now, you could perhaps argue she didn't want him to see her in that condition. Uh, but you could also argue that she was mad at him for what had happened and, you know, didn't want to have him around for that situation. Mike, are you married? Yes, I am. Okay. Happily. Is there? Me too. And he better say the same thing. Mike, um, 
Has your wife ever been in the hospital or been really, really sick? Uh, unfortunately, she has. Okay. Did she want you to stay out of the room because she thought she didn't look good? No. Because my husband, when Lucy and I almost died, childbirth, my husband never left my side. Not once. And I didn't care how I looked. I wanted him to be there, even if it was the bitter end. You're a Daryl Cohen saying, well, had this guy ever had target practice? I'm glad you brought that up as a defense, Daryl Cohen, which is one of the reasons I like to follow the cardinal rule in court. Don't ask the question that you don't already know the answer to. Take a listen to our cut five. This is uh, our friend at 48 Hours. But Tex was no stranger to guns, with a collection of nearly 40, including rifles and AR-15s. You ever taken any like, safety classes or anything like that? The idea that Tex McIver should have known better was about to become a central theme in this case. But it's what Tex did after the shooting that, to some, made him seem more and more like a killer. It gets really crazy. I think we've called it a textbook example of what not to do after you kill your wife. And one of those things was to immediately sell his highly successful wife's beautiful clothes, her purses, her belongings, her jewelry. He basically had a fire sale almost immediately after his wife is shot dead by him. That's one of the things. Take a listen to our cut six, our friends at Fox 5. Listen as prosecutors ask a judge to delay any additional sales of Mrs. MacGyver's valuables. If a defendant is allowed access to the proceeds of either the benefits of the will and or the benefits of the insurance policy, they can conceivably deplete all of those assets. And if a disposition is then entered where Mr. MacGyver, for instance, was found guilty of murder, or felony murder or voluntary manslaughter under the Slayer statute, all of those proceeds would have to be returned to Mrs. McIver's estate. And if he's not, all of those proceeds would then be his. Attorney William Hill challenged whether it was even necessary to hold this hearing. Tex MacGyver, who says the sale is intended to award four of Diane's friends with settlements called for in the will, he says he would have been willing to first place all the proceeds in probate court. Now, it is the probate court that Judge Constance Russell says should have handled the matter altogether. And she says to the prosecution, that's where it should go. She denied the motion. Okay, let me understand this. Daryl Cohen. So after he shoots his wife in the back, after she says, don't let him in my hospital room just before she dies, he has a fire sale of all of her minks and her jewels and her designer shoes and handbags and clothes. Did, did, did I hear that correctly, Daryl Cohen? I think you did, Nancy. Yeah, I think I did too. What his actions were were incomprehensible. But here's a man who was absolutely incomprehensible. His actions, his demeanor, all of that <laughs> doesn't make sense. It goes under. It does he make can't sense. can't make this stuff up. It does make sense. It makes perfect sense. You know what I've got right here in the, in the studio with me? My dad's shirt. He wore all the time his favorite shirt. Okay. Um, in my closet, what you see every morning, Keith, my fiance that was murdered, baseball. He was on baseball scholarship. And sometimes they make me sad and sometimes they give me strength. But 
somebody would have to go through hell and high water to get either one of those things away from me. And here he's having a yard sale. Dr. Sherry Schwartz joining me, forensic psychologist specializing in crime and law, where law and psychology intersect. Dr. Sherry, I don't find it difficult or incomprehensible as Daryl Cohen makes out. I find it very simple and easy to understand. He killed his wife and he wants her money and none of her possessions, nothing that was dear to her means anything to him. He's selling it all. He might as well just throw it out on the sidewalk. Absolutely. And here's what we know. Here's what, what grief research tells us. One of the biggest challenges for widows in particular, is to clean out the closets of their loved one. They want to hold on to the belongings because it makes them feel close to the person. They have guilt. They don't want to get rid of the belongings because then it's almost like you're saying out with the old, in with the news, new, but Tex McIver didn't seem to struggle with that. What exactly happened in that car? The evening that Diane was murdered was, I'll just say shot since we're still arguing about the fact of the murder. Take a listen to our cut three. This is Valerie Hoff at 11 Alive. As police investigate how a gun went off inside the vehicle, Putnam County Sheriff Howard Sills is remembering a close friend of many years. He says the MacGyvers, who divided their time between Buckhead and Eatonton, were philanthropists who were very involved in the community, often entertaining at MacGyver Ranch. Diane was a was a vivacious, beautiful, entertaining uh, woman who was uh, uh, a lot of fun to, to be around. Atlanta police have not yet completed their investigation, though they say they are fairly close. Sheriff Sills says Tex MacGyver, a prominent Atlanta attorney, is distraught and grief-stricken. So distraught and grief-stricken, he has a yard sale. In the last days, we learned that high-profile lawyer out of Atlanta, Tex McIver, the wannabe cowboy, will, quote, max out in the fall of 2025. That What does that mean? He's going to be released by that date. And actually, through parole, there is a very strong possibility he will be released earlier. In fact, the parole board could decide to release him today. I'm telling you, this is a case of rich man's justice, and I don't like it. Now take a listen to our cut for our friends from 48 Hours. Diane is seated in the passenger seat, Texas seated right behind his wife. Not far from home, they hit traffic and exited the highway. Tex says he woke up, saw homeless people, and became worried. A spokesman would later say that Tex asked for his gun because he was afraid of carjackers and Black Lives Matter protesters. With that loaded gun now in his lap, Tex says he fell back asleep. I was handling the gun. I didn't realize it was in my lap. Expert Bert Davis. Can a 38 special just accidentally go off? Never known it to happen. You have to pull the trigger. Jiminy, ooh, what is your challenge with this gun? Well, I think you just put your finger on it. Clearly, a trigger was pulled. The question is, was that a voluntary, knowing and intentional action or an involuntary action based upon an accident? I mean, Lisa Daddio joining me, former police lieutenant with New Haven PD and now director of the Center for Advanced Policing. Lisa, thank you for being with us. Uh, You hear this guy has a collection of 40 guns, including an AR. 
You also hear the ballistics experts say a 38 is not going to go off, quote, on its own. What do you make of it? it? It's an excuse he's using, and that's just my personal feeling. Um, you don't have that that volume of firearms, and one would assume he has adequate training and he knows what he's doing with the firearm for something to go off, quote, accidentally. Um, having your finger on the trigger, being able to pull that trigger with however many pounds is required for the weapon that was used in this murder um, it, it just doesn't make any sense. And, and hearing it and seeing it, it's just, it, it's honestly mind boggling. Um, the claims in this case that it was anything but murder. And let's talk about the trajectory path in the case. Uh, Dr. Kendall Krause is joining me, chief medical examiner of Tarrant County. That's Fort Worth lecturer, University of Texas and Texas A&M and on faculty, University of Texas medical branch. Dr. Crowns, thank you for being with us. What can you tell us about the trajectory path? So the trajectory path of the bullet was listed by the medical examiner going from back to front, right to left, and downwards. There was some question of whether it was upwards, but based on what the medical examiner said, it did have a downward trajectory path. Okay, Dr. Kendall Crowns, could you translate that? What does that mean if he's sitting in the back seat and you've got, obviously, back to front, which means he's shot from the back seat, she's sitting in the front seat, from right to left must mean he scooted over or in the very middle if the trajectory goes from her right to her left and you're saying up to down, up to down, like right under the breast, downward toward the hip. And that, what does that mean? Where would he have been sitting? How, how would that have happened? So he, it, the gun itself would have to be slightly, to have a downward wound course, kind of slightly elevated uh, based on the entrance wound. So it's, you know, if it's sitting in his lap like the, uh, he is saying, it's a possibility that the, the gun's firing from, you know, waist height of him hitting her in the back and then going uh, in a slightly downward course. But he's right-handed. That If it were to go off in that direction and he's holding it in his right hand, he'd have to turn. I, I don't see how that would be achieved by just sitting in the back seat with your hand holding the gun and your finger on the trigger. If that were true, and you're right-handed, it would have gone off toward the driver's side, not the passenger side. That's correct. If he's sitting, the yeah, he, I mean, you make a good point. It would be difficult if he's firing it from his right hand for it to have a right-to-left trajectory based on her position in the car. Okay, so Dr. Kendall Crowns, I was thinking left-to-right. You said this was right-to-left, correct? Correct. Okay, that makes more sense. If he's right-handed, he's on the right, he's turned that way, yeah, still. But still, you've got up to down. That doesn't make sense. If he's sitting behind her, holding the gun in his lap, as he says, how would the trajectory path be up to down? Uh, again, I mean, it's it's difficult to say based on the level of the uh, chairs in the car. I would assume they're all level. You would expect it to be more of a just... Uh, no upward downward deviation just to be a straight shot through so it does show that the gun is slightly above 
uh, her position uh, when it's fired to give it a downward course. Again, I, I don't have a good explanation for that. To Mike Pachinik joining me, former reporter WSB TV Channel 2 Atlanta. How did the defense, if you can recall, explain away that trajectory path? Well, I mean, they, they claim that, you know, the, the way he was sitting, uh, you know, the, the gun would have been on his lap. And, you know, they, they had a, a defense uh, expert who, who testified uh, that the gun would not have been against the seat, that it would have been, you know, back a few inches when fired. Um, tests for gunshot residue were not conducted by APD, uh, according to this expert. Um, and that he said the gun really wouldn't have been pressed up against the seat, had to have been at least six inches away um, and, 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 and potentially in that plastic bag, as they had said. And that, uh, you know, in, with the, the gun rusting on his thigh in that way, um, due to the what they called spatial constraints inside the SUV, holding the gun vertically would not have been possible. Okay. I hear you talking about what the defense said was spatial constraints in the car. I know this. They can spatial constraint, constraint all they want to, but he pulled the trigger and she's dead and she did not want him in the room with her as she was dying. And that's got to count for something. And you heard people describe his behavior afterwards as what not to do after your spouse dies. Take a listen now to our Cut 7. So in the car, you have the man who pulls the trigger, the woman who dies, and the driver. All three of these people initially say it was an accident. What happens after they get out of the car is Tex changes his story a couple of times, and the driver of the car, who originally said it was a terrible tragedy, a terrible accident, she changes her story, and she says that Tex asked her to change her story as well. He also then goes on to auction off all of her belongings. She had hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of jewelry and furs and, um, couture clothing and now he says it was at the behest of a lawyer who was running uh, her estate Mm -hmm. but he each thing he does individually it looks a little odd but collectively it just doesn't look good at all what does she mean by that mike pachinik joining me formerly with wsb tv what does she mean that the driver danny joe carter also changed her story well you know in the days after the the shooting uh we know that tex mcgyver called her, uh, left a voicemail on her husband's phone, essentially saying, she's going to send me to prison. You got to help me here, buddy. And, and that's, of course, why he was convicted of, uh, of witness tampering. But she was she was fearful. She was worried that he was going to come after her. When he wanted her, the driver, Danny Lynn Carter, to change her story, what did he want her to say, Mike? Well, I mean, he wanted her to say that this was, this was an accident. He wanted her to, to corroborate his story. So in the end, everything changed. I want you to hear what we know about Diane before her death, refusing to have her husband with her as she was rolled into the ER. Take a listen to our cut 12, our friends at 11 Alive. Before Diane went into the operating room, Dr. Hardy asked Diane if she wanted to see her husband. Here is Dr. Hardy recalling that question, followed by Diane's response to questions about the shooting itself. And, um... And she appeared to be coherent when she said no. Correct? Yes. Right. She said it was an accident. She wasn't under any duress when she said. 
No. You didn't try to steer her one direction or another to get her to say something? No. In her coherent state, she said it was nothing. Yes. Stories with Nancy Grace. I'm looking at Tex McIver right now, all dressed up in his uh, Brooks Brothers suit, wearing the American flag on his lapel, looking pretty darn smug with his fleet of lawyers. Mike Buchanan, what exactly was the verdict? Uh, on which level offense was he convicted? So he was convicted of felony murder, which, as you know, Nancy, in the state of Georgia, means that uh, the jury believed that he uh, was committing the felony of aggravated assault to to wound his wife, and she died uh, during the commission of that felony. Uh, but what was curious was after the, the verdict, uh, a juror went on TV and was asked point blank, do you feel like this was you know, malicious in any way. Of course, he wasn't convicted of malice murder, but he was convicted of felony murder. And the juror was seemed kind of confused and was like, I, you know, I think he did what he had to do. He shot her to incapacitate her so he could somehow control her. Uh, so there was a lot of confusion after that verdict, Nancy. Take a listen to our cut 13, the jury four person. Read the verdict into the record. On count one, murder. We find the defendant not guilty. On count two, felony murder, we find the defendant, defendant guilty of felony murder. On count three, aggravated assault, we find the defendant guilty. On count four, possession of a firearm during the commission of a felony, we find the defendant guilty. On count five, influencing a witness, we find the defendant Daryl, you know, We've all heard of ear witnesses. I was just listening, and I heard a voice that I could identify anywhere. It was a longtime friend, a protege, a person I trained myself, Clint Rucker, the prosecute, one of the prosecutors in this case. Daryl, could you explain how it feels when you put your heart, your soul, into a case and you know the person is guilty and has done a horrible thing, and an appellate court in their ivory tower reverses the case. Nancy, it's almost impossible to explain. Clint Rucker won this case, in my view, because of his pervasive. He was so pervasive. Oh, my gosh. He was so good at what he did. He made the jury realize. He brought the jury into the car. He brought the jury into the life of Texas, Diane McIver. He was able to convince them that what happened was not an accident. And when you put your heart and soul into a case and you believe everything that you've done and then you have someone or someones in this case who are not in the courtroom who are only looking at the transcripts it destroys your whole fiber of your being for this particular case because you know what you did was right you know what you did was the correct thing to do and you argued and you persuaded this jury to do what they should have done and to see 
people who were not there who don't really know the don't know what the feelings are the emotion it just it's destroyed you from within and especially a good prosecutor a decent good person like Clint who gave it his all and now this you know what i want to talk about i want to talk about money mike pachinic uh you just heard daryl cohen who was a prosecutor the same office with me under mr slayton as you will recall describing the feeling you get when a, a, an appellate court who really has no idea what went on in the courtroom reverses your case. I want, he's mentioned the life they led. They lived pretty high on the hog, Mike. It was all her money. He was floundering. She was bailing him out, wasn't she? Yeah, I mean, he worked at a big law firm, but you mentioned at the beginning that he was uh, sort of uh, set up to pasture, right, because he wasn't pulling his weight. And she was definitely the breadwinner in that house. She owned the ranch out in Edenton. Uh, there was testimony that she was lending him hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, to bankroll his lavish lifestyle. In fact, during the trial, it came out that he sort of joked with her that he had to win the lottery because uh, he was spending more than they were bringing in. And you know, the prosecution put on a, a case that here's a guy who stood to gain millions of dollars with Diane dead and she was more worth more to him dead than alive. You know, I, I, that's, I think that's an illness, Dr. Sherry Schwartz. I really do. Not rising to the level of insanity, but I mean, you know, Dr. Sherry, we grew up with nothing on a red dirt road in middle Georgia. And um, when you grow up that way, you know how blessed you are when you finally get a job, you know, when you finally get your first car. I mean, it, it sounds like spending money and being used to a lavish lifestyle was something he could not forego. It, it does seem like that. And you're right. It, there, it may not in and of itself be a diagnosable mental illness, but there is usually some sort of psychopathology underlying that. Whether it's, I mean, you know, we see it a lot in narcissism. You know, we see it in uh, histrionic personalities, various things where people are spending and spending and spending to try to fill some void. And they think that the stuff is going to help them fill that void. Hmm. I think you just get used to being rich. I mean, Daryl Cohen, you and I prosecuted people that were broke. Uh, we prosecuted really, really rich people up from North Atlanta. Have you ever noticed how rich people they are so cheap. They will spend all kind of money on themselves in a lavish lifestyle. They wouldn't give a man on the corner a dollar if their life depended on it. Well, Nancy, I think that's narcissism. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't realize you had your uh, psychiatric degree as well, but go ahead. <laughs> it's my personal psychiatric degree. I just think that's narcissism, and it's all it's all about me, and this is what this, much of this country has turned to be. I made that farm in Eatonton. That, that was his idea, the ranch, the farm. They had a full-on staff. There was a home. There were hundreds of acres that had to be kept up. For what? So they could drive an hour out of Atlanta and go sit on the front porch on the weekend? I mean, that's a huge 
ticket item. Makes no sense to me. Never did. But you can't make this stuff up. You know, you just can't figure out rich people. I'm just telling you that. I mean, Mike Pachinik, what was their lifestyle? I mean, they, to give me an example, they had a private masseuse that would come to their fancy condo in Buckhead and, uh, you know, rub them down a couple times a week. That, that had to have been expensive. Okay, wait, 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 please. Mike, talking to you, I feel like I'm drinking out of the fire hydrant too much, too fast. Wait, could you slow down and say that again? I need to hear that one more time. They had a private masseuse who came to their fancy Buckhead condo several times a week to, to give them a massage, which had to have been very expensive. In fact, she was called as a witness uh, in the trial. The masseuse. You know, I completely forgot that part. Tell me about that part. Yeah, this was a, a young female masseuse uh, who became very close with Diane and Tex over time, uh, who would come and give them uh, uh, massages. And uh, frankly, during the trial, those of us who were covering it were, were kind of waiting for the prosecution to drop some other shoe and claim that there was something untoward happening between Tex and this masseuse. That did not happen and that there was no evidence of that, but they were certainly kind of leading jurors down that path. Uh, but that's just an example of the kind of uh, spending uh, that, that they did. They, they were, you know, they were high society folks. You know, Dr. Kendall Crowns, uh, Chief Medical Examiner, Tarrant County, as Fort Worth. Dr. Crowns, I'm sure you've heard the phrase dying declaration many, many times. That's an exception to hearsay. Um, and hearsay, when you ask a witness to state under oath to a jury or in court what somebody else said, that's not there to be cross-examined. That's the problem with hearsay. You can't cross-examine the speaker. Dying declaration, completely different. And in this case, Diane said, no, I don't want to see him. That was her dying declaration. She did not want him around her. Have you had other cases of your, let me just say, patients that gave dying declarations? And do you believe that, based on what you know, Diane understood what she was saying at the end? Uh, you know, I have had other cases in which there was, you know, they asked for family to be by their side or asked to go home, things of that nature. Based on her injuries, I, I don't feel like she had anything that would have caused her uh, cognition or her ability to think clearly to be disrupted. So I, I feel like she knew what she was saying at the time she passed away and had a whatever purpose in her mind for it. Uh, but I don't think it was a confused statement. I think it uh, was something that she just didn't want him around at the end. Mike Pachinik with me, uh, high-profile reporter, formerly WSB-TV Channel 2, why did the Supremes claim they had to reverse this decision? They claimed that there was thin evidence at best that there was an intentional murder committed here. But it wasn't an intentional murder conviction. It was a felony murder conviction. Right, right. And they are claiming that the jury should have been given the option to convict Tex MacGyver of the much lesser misdemeanor involuntary manslaughter charge, which would say that this was a reckless act, an accident, um, and they were not given that instruction. So the, so because of that, they overturned the conviction. He doesn't fool me. He shot his wife dead. And I do not believe for one minute any, any one of his many stories he came up with as to why he pulled the trigger. 
but this is what I do know. He is set to walk free. We wait as justice unfolds. Goodbye, friend. There's a shortcut to platinum status at Shell. To saving 10 cents per gallon on every fill every day. Just fill up six times with Shell V-Power Nitro Plus Premium Gasoline and it's yours. Plus, you'll rejuvenate your engine. Get ready to level up performance, rewards, and savings. With continuous use in gasoline direct injection engine fuel injectors, platinum status is earned with 12 fill-ups over three months, 10-gallon minimum per fill-up at participating Shell locations. Terms apply. Visit fuelrewards.com status.